Awesome. Thank you, Natalie. That's awesome. And thank you for being here. Uh, whether you're here uh, uh, in person or you're at home joining us online, or maybe you're joining us sometime in the future because of the wizardry of digital technology and recordings and all that. In any case, thanks for being here. Uh, church is changing, right? Where we do church and how we do church is under renovation by God, in, in my humble opinion. And I commend you, uh, wherever you are, I commend you for uh, adapting allowing God's Spirit to lead you uh, as he leads our church into new spaces. I thank you for that and uh, appreciate you being a part of this journey uh, that we're on together. If you are joining us digitally and you happen to be doing it via Facebook, I wanted to invite you to engage uh, through the lobby that's there. We've got folks that are ready to just chat and talk and dialogue about what you're hearing and what's going on through your mind and your heart, and I would encourage you to engage that in some way. Uh, I obviously won't be engaging it at this particular moment, but that feedback comes back to me, which I appreciate because it helps me understand what the Spirit is doing in this church because we have one spirit, and he lives not only in uh, me, but he lives in every believer, one spirit. And to know what God's doing in your heart is important to us holistically as a church. It informs what uh, comes out during the ReChurch podcast during the week or the conversation in the round the next week. So I encourage you to come and be a part of it. Like Natalie said, we're looking through a study we call Rooted. We, well, we don't call it Rooted. The, the authors call it Rooted. But it's a curriculum that we found to be very engaging. This last week, we uh, entered into the topic of suffering. Uh, <laughs> suffering is one of the toughest conversations to have, one of the toughest dialogues to engage in, because suffering, in one sense, is so very personal. What you suffer with, even if it's somewhat similar to what I suffer with, the way you're experiencing it, uh, the pain, the, the, the discouragement, the, the doubts, the, uh, the, 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 the capacity that you feel like you, you can't go on, is uniquely yours. Uh, but God never intended for us to suffer alone. He says he'll walk through it with us. And uh, those that he puts in your life are there to walk through it with us. And none of us really do it very well. And if there's a time where we need the people around us to do really, really well, it's when we're suffering. But they don't have any capacity to do better in those moments than we do in any moment. We really have to have grace with one another and even grace for ourselves as we battle through stuff that is deeply hurtful, devastating, troubling, discouraging. Suffering is hard. We tend to put God in two boxes. I'm going to talk about suffering just for a couple minutes, and then we'll move to today, today's subject, which is much easier. Evil. And we're only going to do 30 minutes of evil since it's so simple to cover. But for the moment, suffering. We tend to put God into two categories. We tend to put him into these extremes. And if someone were to engage you about God and suffering, and they, they aren't a person of faith, they will do this, uh, not maliciously necessarily. It, it just seems logical. Is your God too weak to take care of the pain and the suffering in this world? 
right? People look at this world and they think, why is there so much pain and suffering? And if there's a God, why isn't he doing anything about it? Is he too weak? Or the opposite extreme, extreme, is he strong enough? But he doesn't care. Is your God too weak to do anything about it? Or is he strong enough and he just doesn't care? Well, the person of faith, uh, the, the, the scripturally grounded person, uh, the one that has uh, understood the, the gospel, the, the good news from Jesus, has a third option. We, we aren't stuck with just those two options. We have a third option. Our option is one of humility and faith. In humility, we look at the situation in our world and we look at our God whom we know is powerful enough and when he doesn't move according to our timeline and according to our ways, we humbly admit we must not know what is best. We must not know what is good. We must know not precisely what timing is best. And then we operate with faith. We say God does, that God knows what is good and what is best. When we don't operate that way, we operate like a three-year-old dealing with his parents who is frustrated and is sick in his stomach because he so badly wants to eat the entire bowl of candy. And he's pleading with his parents, don't you understand how hungry I am? Don't you understand how mentally anguished I am to see the bowl of candy and not consume the bowl of candy? And the good parent says, you don't understand what is best for you. Yes, you're suffering, but it is best that you not eat that candy. The three-year-old of humility and faith, which are rare, says, oh, I don't only understand that, but I believe you, okay, and I trust you. No, the three-year-old standing on the edge of the street with his arm being gripped tightly to the point possibly of pain and the shoulder coming out of its socket as he tries to run out into the street to get the ball that he loves so much. And the parent is ostensibly causing pain. Why? Because he knows what is best. If you look at Ephesians chapter 6, uh, chapter 4, verse, if you look for Ephesians chapter, Philippians chapter 6, here's what we're going to do. <clears throat> we're going to slow down and we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. It says this, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Don't be anxious about anything. That's a bit rhetorical. Show of hands. Is there stuff in the world that is anxiety provoking? Right? We can't sit here and say there's nothing to be anxious about. Right? But Paul is saying to the Philippians, look, there's a ton to be anxious about in your life, but don't be, instead of being anxious about it, Present your request to God. Pray. Talk, talk to God. 
Put your requests out there. I want the whole bowl of candy. I want to run out into the street for my ball. I want you to do this. I need you to do that. I, uh, please step in and take care of this situation. Oh God, oh God, oh God. And Paul goes on, the peace, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God comes to fill the soul of the believer rather than the anxiety that oftentimes comes in anxiety-provoking situations. Now, what's critical here is to read what's not written. To read what is between verse 6 and 7. What happens between verse 6 and the requests being made and the peace of God that transcends understanding? What happens? Nothing. Nothing that we're aware of. The peace of God in the face of anxiety-provoking stuff in life doesn't come as a result of God's action related to what you're praying about. It comes as a result of our engagement with God and his presence in the midst of all of that. Do you see what I'm saying? You see what Paul is saying? We tend to think the equation goes like this. I make my request. God answers my request and I have peace. But Paul says it doesn't go like that. It goes like this. We go to our knees. We make our requests. We are grateful. We're thankful. We reorient our mind to God knowing what is good. We humble ourselves. We put our faith in him. We connect and engage and we reach out to God and he reaches back to us and gives us peace in the midst of all that we've been praying about. Radically different than is your God too weak or is he uncaring? It takes a lifetime practice and learn these things, but we lean into them. And now to the topic of evil. Let's give that a shot. Let me ask you this. What do you believe about evil? What do you believe about Satan? What do you believe about the devil, demonic spirits, evil forces, invisible battles? What do you believe about that? If we were to sit down one-on-one -on -one and answer that question. I suspect your answers would be as different as you are from everybody sitting next to you or anybody you know, really. The answers to those questions are almost as different as our own fingerprints. What we believe about evil is difficult to get a grasp on. We don't really know how it all works difficult to really get your head around what it truly is, where it originates, how evil manifests itself into this world, how Satan, demons, evil spirits are deployed. We don't really get it fully. There are things we do know from scripture to include the things that Jesus taught but there's also quite a bit that's circulated in religious circles that is at very least confusing. In some cases, wrong. We've adopted some language. We've adopted some theologies. That we don't even understand ourselves. 
And we're trying to convince other people of what we're not so convinced of ourselves. For some reason, as Christians, we're afraid to say, I don't really know all that much. And to leave it at what we do know, if we do know, it can be confusing. You might say, the devil made me do it. I don't know if you mean directly or indirectly. And you might say that the devil is something a little bit different than the Satan. And you might be right. I, I don't know. You might say the devil most certainly did not make me do it. Because you understand that the devil is a fallen angel that can only occupy one point in time at any given time. And your thought is, if the devil can only be in one place at a time, I would imagine he's not all that interested in me. I, I, I'm, not the, I'm not the chief uh, spiritual leader in the world right now. Right? You might say, no, the devil wouldn't personally, would never, would certainly not make me do anything. You might imagine that your life is one that has Satan on this shoulder and Jesus on this shoulder. And the devil is whispering in this ear for what you shouldn't do and an angel is whispering in this ear what you should do or Jesus, whatever. You, you, that's what you, what you mean. And, and you would be sort of right that there is this pull, this spiritual pull in life of what to do what's right and to do what's wrong. But you would be entirely wrong if you were to suggest that Satan and Jesus were peers, that they're somehow on the same level. Now this, this spiritual battle that we face isn't Jesus versus Satan. It's not Satan versus God. The, 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 Satan is nowhere near the level of God. God is, God is sovereign, supreme, fully empowered over all things, even the darkness. Satan has been, uh, fall, he's a fallen angel. If he has a peer at all, per se, it would be Michael or Gabriel, another angel, an angel of light rather than dark. That, that would be the, so, so the idea that Jesus, so we have a lot of different ways of thinking about evil of which some have some reasonable to it. And in other cases, we're completely wrong in what we think. You might say, I'm being attacked by an evil spirit. And you might be. But you could be mentally diseased. You could be emotionally devastated due to a horrible evil act that happened a long time ago. I don't know which it is. Could be both. Think about this. Words, ideas, concepts, knowledge of, that was uh, had in the first century that we read about in scriptures, radically different than what we understand today. For example, when the storm swept into the Sea of Galilee, while Jesus and his disciples were out there on a boat, that vicious storm that threatened their lives, they were very, very afraid of that storm, but they were also very afraid of the demonic forces that they knew at the time lived 
deep within the dark, unexplored waters beneath them. Virtually no one believes that today. What do we do with that sort of thing? How do we work our way through what's true and what's wrong? Do you see what I'm saying? Whether our theology is right or it's wrong, it's complicated when it comes to evil. We are of one spirit. When I say we, I mean, I mean Christians, for example, are of one spirit, and we aren't even on the same page. And that's, that's okay. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that unless we in our particular theology purport that this one is exactly right and yours is exactly wrong. And then we start to have division in the church over something as critical as evil. When we make a particular viewpoint or a particular theology about anything, quite honestly, the doorway through which someone must walk in order to find Jesus, we're going to find ourselves in very few gospel conversations. Let me be clear. It is equally unhelpful, if not straight out wrong, to stick your head in the sand and ignore the actualities of evil evident throughout Scripture, including the teachings and demonstrations of Jesus. I think the world, in general, is fairly comfortable with the idea that there is some kind of a dark force. There is some kind of evil in the world. But altogether, humanity, humanity, we don't really fully understand the nature of it or the answer for it. Unless you're a Jesus follower. If you're a Christian, you do have the knowledge. You do have some answers. But if we try to capture it with insider language or, or superficial theologies that we don't really know much about, we end up seeming like unreasonable weirdos. Or the next conspiracy theorist supporters. What's my point? We need a basic theology of evil that is uniting, that it's somewhat accessible that we can agree upon and opens and facilitates conversation, not only among Christians, but with anybody. What is our basic understanding of evil? Let's talk about that. Well, what is it? The big picture, something else is going on than what we see. That's the basic scriptural understanding of evil. Something else is going on that we can't see. Let me give you an example. You know, the world is going to be fighting itself forever. The world is going to be fighting itself. You are going to be fighting with somebody somewhere forever. It's human nature to try to win, to try to get on top, to try to survive, to try to rise, to own that what somebody else owns. 
And apart from God, all those sorts of accolades and achievements and acquisitions tend to be what we go to for life, a sense of fulfillment. And when we don't get it, when we don't have it, we grab for it, we fight for it. Nations that neighbor one another will always be fighting to defend their place in the world, if not to expand it. Democrats and Republicans will be fighting to occupy the highest seats and for their policies to be in place. Lots of marriages will end in unresolvable disagreements because neither one of those parties feels like they are important enough to the other person. Businesses will clash in an effort to overtake another's market share. The world is going to be fighting itself forever. And we try to resolve those tensions and fights but we usually fail to resolve anything because the origin, the tension, the disagreement, and the division is hidden and it's unattended to. We're almost always fighting straw men. You can't see, you can't hear, you can't taste, you can't smell, you can't touch the real origins of the fight. You can see it when it comes out in ways that our senses can identify it, but the origins are invisible. To fight the battle of evil through the visible is to try to fight poor journalism by crushing your screen where the journalism broadcast waves come through. Right? Do you see the difference? There's something hidden that works itself out in a way. And we try to get rid of bad, that bad thing by crushing that screen. We can't get rid of poor journalism by crushing the screen through which it comes. But that's the way we try to handle the fights in our world. We try to deal with the fights in the visible. And there's something bigger going on. If we ever hope to have a ceasefire in our families and our businesses and our politics and our relationships, we need a new awareness of what's really going on and a radically different approach to resolving our conflicts. Your fight, listen, your fight is not with a person about that issue. From a Christian perspective, it is much deeper than that. And if we don't get to that theological framework, we will be fighting along with the rest of the world forever. This life, Jesus tells us, is a spiritual battle. It's a conflict of two dominions. Two dominions. On the one hand, you have the dark powers of this visible temporal world combined with the dark forces of an invisible world. That's one dominion. The dark powers of this world combined with the evil forces of the supernatural world. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Ephesus. Take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, listen, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That is one of the dominions in this cosmic conflict, a conflict, a dominion that is one of darkness and of decay and deception, and Satan is the figurehead monarch of that dominion. 
The other dominion is one of God. And he ushered it in with his son. Listen to the way John puts it in his gospel. Very first chapter of the gospel of John. I'm paraphrasing a little bit to abbreviate it. God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And catch this, John 1, verses 4 and 5. In him, catch the difference between darkness and death and deception, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it or overcome it. The second dominion is one of light and life and truth. And Jesus is the sovereign monarch of that dominion. Remember, Satan and Jesus, they're not peers. I, 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 you might not have caught the subtle difference here. Satan is a figurehead monarch. He has very little power. We'll talk about the power he does have. As opposed to Jesus, who has been given all authority and all power. He is a sovereign monarch. He is in charge of all of it. Satan is a figurehead in charge of the dark dominion. So in short, we're always experiencing, yet not fully comprehending. And this is the hard part. The clashing of the spiritual dominions of dark and light. This is the battle that rages behind or beneath, however you want to put it, the surface of every earthly conflict. On the one hand, we have the dominion of evil, which is a decaying, dying place with spiritually dead people conducting themselves and organizing themselves and creating systems that perpetuate decay and condemnation and lies and fears. And like the mythology of vampires, light is its mortal enemy. And that's what we have on the other hand, the dominion of God, a kingdom of life and light and grace and truth. And the darkness can't overcome it. This is our basic theology of evil. It exists. We don't fully understand it. It has a worldly effect and a personal effect. It's vast. It's sometimes direct. It's often systematic. Its origins are both cosmic, spiritual, and sinful, and from the sinful hearts of men on this earth. And we lack the ability to fully understand it. That's our basic theology. And we can dig into that theology. We can dive into that. We can learn a lot about how Satan does work, who he is, how it goes, what is it about demons and the demonic and spiritual influence and all that stuff is real on some level, very difficult to grasp. But I will say this, irrespective of all of the importance of the theology of evil, we can get so caught up in what we believe about it and how we articulate that we can be missing the primary point the most important and critical aspect of the whole idea of evil. You and I are affected by it. We're influenced by evil people, worldly systems, spiritually dark forces that work their way out in our thoughts and our words and our deeds. told you that the devil, Satan, the demonic forces are limited in their power. They really only have two primary tools. The dark force of this world do two things. They lie 
deceive. Deception is one. And the other is accusation. And both lies and the accusations are largely about the gospel, our understanding of Jesus, and the personal effect of Jesus in my life. The dark forces are primarily aimed at using lies and accusation to attack what we have in Jesus and who we are in him. The Apostle John says the devil has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He's a liar and the father of lies. The last book of the Bible says the devil and Satan, the deceiver or the deceivers of the whole world. That's what Paul says. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He's a liar. He perpetuates lies. Darkness is all about lies and accusations. Those lies play on our fears and our ego. Let me read to you from Genesis chapter three, the very beginning of the Bible. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, this crafty serpent serpent says, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God said, you must not eat from the fruit, the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And what does Satan do? He lies. He says, well, you're not gonna die. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, plays to the ego of these two. He says, you'll have something that you want. You'll have something that you think you need. You'll be like the one that is greater than you. He appeals to their ego and their fears. They were hungry. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, something that she wanted, Pleasing to the eye. Well, that's cool. Let me have what's pleasing to my eye. Desirable for gaining wisdom. Oh, this thing can bring me something that I don't have, right? I've got these fears where I'm not going to be smart enough. I'm not going to be full. I'm not going to be fed. I'm not going to be happy. She goes to something other than God. She eats it, gives some to her husband who said, okay, I'll have some too. He plays on our fears and our egos and he's lying to us. And he attacks our identity. This is why Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter six after he describes this setting of the two dominions, dark and light. He says, so put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, when the lies come, when the accusations come, you will be able to stand your ground. When the lies come, when the accusations come, I want you to be able to stand. And here's how you stand. He says, stand firm then with what? I'm going to paraphrase. Truth about Jesus. The righteousness that comes from Jesus. Your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. It's about Jesus. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith in Jesus. Take the helmet of salvation that comes from Jesus and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, which is the narrative about Jesus. Stand firm in what you know to be true about Jesus, your reconciliation with God, his forgiveness of you. Stand there. 
is how you fight the lies and the accusations of the evil one. It's part of the Christian mission on earth to engage the spiritual battle beneath all the fights that plague our world, all the wickedness that's in the various systems, all the organizations and groups and, and, and the spiritual battle that rages beneath our relationships. But it's really, really important for us to deal with the evil that's influencing our own hearts. This is where we have the most control. This is where we have the, really the most or should have the most understanding about yeah, how evil is working itself out. Let me give you three things you can do. Even if you don't, and trust me, we don't fully understand evil the way we maybe should. You can do these things irrespective of really any full understanding. Number one, honest assessment. Humbly admit evil is twisted into everything that you think and say and do. You can't escape its effect. Do you doubt that? We don't want to believe that's true. We do not want to believe that that's true. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had a lie affect you in some way? Have you ever had fear end up harming you in some way? Have lies or fear ever shaped your thinking? Maybe only to discover that they had some later date. Have lies and fear ever influenced your decisions? Have lies and fear ever eventually affected other people in your life? Do you ever have a nasty thought? Do you have prideful thoughts? Do you ever have the thought, evil doesn't affect me? Have you ever been more concerned about yourself than other people? Of course we do. Lies and fear have affected us, but we are disinclined to call that what it is. Where do these things originate? Where do lies come from? Where do your fears come from? They don't come from God. God's a definition of holy, pure, good, beautiful. Lies and fear, they originate from something other than God. They originate not from light, but from darkness. Not from the Holy Spirit, but from a spirit of selflessness, selfishness, self-interest, protection. Lies and fear don't come from the breath of life. They come from the death that sweeps into the absence of life. And so wouldn't it be fair to say We've given evil opportunity in our own minds, in our own thoughts, in our own lives, in our own hearts. We don't want to accept that ungodliness is darkness. It's not neutral. Ungodliness comes from evil influence. And it can grip our heart in our mind. The source and the power, whatever it is of evil can be very elusive, but we've got to be certain about this. We've got to accept the fact that we're vulnerable to the ongoing insidious and damaging influences of evil. It mingles with even our best intended thoughts 
and it works itself out in our best intended words and deeds. In short, it is unchristian to write off Satan and the dark spirit of this world such that you become ignorant of the influences of evil in our own lives. We have to repent. Number one, we have to admit that evil gets twisted into our hearts and minds and we need to repent. We need to be aware. We need to accept it. We need to admit it, confess it, and turn away from it back to God. Number two, you can deal with evil by, evil by uh, practicing some disciplined spiritual behaviors to use some guardrails. You know, the home that I am the steward of and the property that I'm the steward of, if I don't take care of it, it goes downhill fast. If I don't take care of that cracked window, that cracked window becomes a broken window. That broken window makes, gives access to, to nature's forces, varmints, weather, and then my house gets worse. If I don't paint that deck or stain that deck, that deck is going to become damaged, it's going to become rotted, and it's going to become dangerous. If I don't clean up my house and get rid of that food that's left over and pick the crumbs up off the floor and get it out of my house, I am inviting more problems. If I happen to live on the side of a hill, I better use some retaining walls and push that water around my house that's pouring down that thing or it's gonna go into my foundation and ruin my entire house. The spiritual life is no different. Pray, pray, pray. How often? Every day, more than you possibly even can imagine. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus says, pray that while you're praying. Paul says to those that are listening to him and talk about this whole spiritual cosmic thing, he says, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying, not only for yourself, but for other people. We should be immersed in the scriptures. We should be in fellowship with one another, practicing any kind of spiritual discipline. You know, you should read is uh, Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. He outlines a dozen or, or more um, spiritual disciplines that come from the scriptures that we can practice. These kinds of disciplines are a resistance in and of themselves of evil in our life. And speaking of resistance, we should resist. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, Paul says, to God and resist the devil and he will flee from, that's James actually, and he will flee from you. Do you realize that? by standing with the full armor of God and remembering who you are in Christ. The darkness cannot stay in the midst of that. That's the wonderful thing about the metaphor of light and dark. We used to take 10 students at a time down into a caving system in western Pennsylvania of which you had to go through some very small cracks and crevices to get through and down to where we wanted to lead them. And unbeknownst to them, we led them into a huge cavern as big as this room. And they had no idea. We had them sitting together like we were still in a really tight place. And then we would light one match, one, and boom. Where did the darkness go? Gone. How much of it? All of it. That's the power of the light of Jesus in the believer. This is not a battle of flesh and blood. He said, remember, it's not a battle of flesh and blood. And we don't fight this battle with flesh and blood. 
We fight this battle spiritually with the truth about what is right about Jesus and me. What we really need to do more than anything else to come against, to resist evil, to guard it off, to, to, to hold it off, is to rest. Rest. It's not work. It's not a battle of flesh and blood. It's not about a flesh and blood fight. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Maybe the most important battle for us in the midst of evil is to rest. And remember, there's very little that we can do about it except rest in the truth of the gospel and the darkness must flee. I'm going to finish with one quick verse from Revelation 12 and a prayer that I found from a wonderfully humble man dealing with this very same subject. I'm going to cut it down a little bit so it's not too long, but I, I, this, this, this wonderful heart captured what we're talking about. I'm going to finish with that. <clears throat> Revelation 12, 11 says, they triumphed over him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb or the work of Jesus and by the word of their testimony, that is their personal receiving of the work of Jesus. That is how they triumphed because of Jesus and what Jesus has done for them. Let's pray. I'm going to read, but you'll pray along with me. Father, you sent Jesus into the world to destroy the works of the devil. He came and he has succeeded. Hallelujah. Satan's head has been crushed and his fate has been sealed. The gospel is true and powerful. Because of the victory Jesus won on the cross, the devil knows his time is short and he's filled with fury, a dragon with a mortal wound, and route to his sure demise, he will continue to ramp up his seducing, his tempting, his condemning ways, every opportunity he gets. But humbly, Father, we realize the best we can do in spiritual warfare, the, mess, the best resisting of the devil is when I am most fully believing the gospel. So right now, Father, we humbly bow before you Recognizing the gospel frees us to see our own sin, our own weakness, to understand my own susceptibility to the devil's schemes. Father, we need the gospel today as much as we ever did. To remember that we are righteous in your sight, not of anything of our own. I trust you, we trust you for all the truth and the grace I'll ever need to live for your glory Lord Jesus, you are our wisdom, you are righteousness, you are our holiness, you are our redemption. Though the devil can accuse us, he can no longer condemn us because you took the judgment we deserve. We boast in you and nothing else. We know there's nothing boastworthy in me. We resist the devil's deceitful ways by looking to you, Jesus pondering your beauty, your bounty, standing in your grace, resting in your love. With the eye of faith, I set my gaze on you, the author and perfecter of my faith. I'll not even glance at the devil as he flees, and flee he must, 
Amen. We pray this in your powerful and triumphant name. Amen. Hey, uh, if you're joining us online, thank you for being a part of this. Now, all of us, we should go and let the light of Jesus in us make the darkness flee. Thank you for being with us.